Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording this show on Friday, April 2nd, 2021. It's the day after April Fool's, Drew. Okay, holiday, I don't care for much. It's when the professionally unfunny do elaborate crap to pretend, look how witty I am. And But no fooling, you came across some big news that is not an April Fool prank, right? It is not an April Fool prank. I mean, it's kind of a April Fool prank on all of us that bought Raya and the Last Dragon on Disney Plus, <laughs> mm-hmm. in a way. Okay. Uh, because today... Out of the blue, seemingly, mm-hmm. they released Raya and the Last Dragon and the short film on mm-hmm. digital platforms today. So, wait a minute, this includes the short? It includes the short and it includes a bunch of deleted scenes and special features, including one that was shared on Slash Film. Mm-hmm. That appears to be a version from before the big director switchover. So this is her as a protector. She's got her magic sword. It, it's all the stuff that kind of fell away when they had their big conversion sometime in 2019. So, Holy yeah, it does suck because... I'm sure like you and I paid for $30 for it just on mm-hmm. on uh, Disney Plus, but you can get it right now on Movies Anywhere and watch it on Vudu and YouTube and everything else. So it's sort of disappointing that they did this and didn't tell anybody about it. But hey, th- that's what it is, I guess, right? Uh, okay. And speaking of stuff that we think might actually be popping up in front of Raya being shown theatrically out in theaters. You came across a short today as well? Yes, uh, there is a Hotel Transylvania short, a new Hotel Transylvania short called Monster Pets, mm-hmm. uh, which is a just it's called Monster Pets, a Hotel Transylvania short, and it says in theaters this weekend in Cinemarks. Mm-hmm. So if you go to Cinemark this weekend and you see Raya, let us know if you saw Monster Pets before that, as we patiently await getting to, to see that. But, wow. you know, it made me think because Gendy is a credited executive producer mm-hmm. on this short. And it made me think of last year, mm-hmm. Jim, when we didn't get to watch a new episode of Primal on <sighs> Adult Swim on April Fool's. But what did they do this year? On March 31st, at the stroke of midnight, Adult Swim went from being Adult Swim to Adult Swim Junior with the notion that they, they changed over their entire channel for small children and suddenly a credit sequence for Rick and Morty babies ran and it's the, the Rick and Morty opening. We all know only with Rick and Morty as infants. And then they ran total recall the, the fourth episode from season two, but it had been entirely redubbed in children's voices, which I got to make some time to find today. I guess there was a, Trailer posted on Twitter where they, for Adult Swim Junior, where they had Aquatina Hunger Force, the Boondocks, and Carvey Birdman, Attorney Law. And my daughter evidently particularly fell in love with Meat Wad with a a toddler's voice. So, got to check this out. Also, we should remind folks that the fifth season of Rick and Morty is going to debut on the Really For Real Adult Swim, Sunday, June 20th. Did you watch Solar Opposites? I have the best of intentions. I promise I will do the, the solar opposites thing. But, you know, that, that'll that be over the course of the rest of the weekend. And at some point this weekend, I'll also have to make time 
to watch the new uh, Space Jam, a new legacy trailer, which HBO and Warners has been telling folks it's going to drop tomorrow at 9 a.m. Pacific time. That's 12 noon here in, in, in on the East Coast. And are you more intrigued now that, I guess, earlier this week they res- released that suite of eight posters? Did, no, those you... posters were terrible. <laughs> Absolutely. T- I don't know who did that. I don't know. It, it, was, it was terrible. I, I thought the characters in Shadow was such mm-hmm. an ugly look. I thought the kind of gradation was all off. Yeah. Not feeling great about this, Jim. Uh, oh. But we I, hopefully the trailer will put me in my place. Okay. Okay. Well, on the other hand, we did also have this week the really thrill trailer for Mitchell's versus the Machine Drop. What did you think of that? Well, I told everybody not to watch it because it gives away some really good stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, did you watch it? I did. I did. Okay. Um, I And I very much looking forward to it now, now that the, you know, sort of the world and the conceit is laid out there. But you've been lucky enough to see the whole film. Yes. Does it give away too much? Yes, it does. Give, well, it gives away some some surprises. It doesn't give away sort of the broad strokes. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but I, I think if you watch it, there's a scene in a mall. That's all mm-hmm. I'll say. Which okay. I think should have been kept out of the, I understand why they did it. And, but mm. when I saw it a little while ago, I wrote probably in all caps, Jim, do mm. not give away the mall scene in the trailer. And, and of course, here we are. But, you know, <sighs> well, these things are out of my I, control. Jim. I, I, that's the thing. You know, the marketing department is always an interesting bunch of people. They don't much care what they give away. As long as people turn out to watch the film, whatever gets you there. And now again, this is going to debut on Netflix on Friday, April 30th. Mind you, the day before that, Thursday, April 29th, we get our next batch of Looney Tunes cartoons over at HBO Max. This is set number four, really? Wow. Yeah. The first set dropped back in April of last year, 10 cartoons. We then got set number two, more than seven months, eight months later in January of 2021. There was a set before that that dropped in December, but what they did, they decided to do at HBO Max is they sort of glommed them all together and they then became known as the Bugs Bunny 24 Carat Holiday Special. Did you catch that at all? Yeah, or? I love that. Did you love it? I did not see it. Now I got to go take oh, a look okay. at it. Now, as long as we're talking about new seasons of stuff coming, and as you're marking up your cartoon calendar here, uh, April 5th, we have the season two of Mirror Royal Detective. It debuts over at Disney Junior. They have brand new episodes every Monday for eight weeks thereafter, with an episode highlighting Eid El Fether. By the way, that's the festival of breaking the fast. That's the marking the end of Ramadan. So uh, kind of intriguing that Disney opted to go that route with the show. But yeah, that debuts on, on May 30th, out ahead of the actual festival of the breaking of the fast, which starts on Wednesday, May 12th, and ends on Thursday, May 13th. And then I know this is a big part of your schedule, Drew, but of yeah. course the season two of My Little Pony, Pony Life, debuts on Discovery Family. There were a couple of Comic-Cons I went to years past, and it was always interesting to run into the bronies. But did you see, you were pretty much on the money in regard to the reaction to uh, Comic-Con Special Edition? Oh, yeah. I I was not alone, Jim, in my... Mm. 
outrage. Yeah. yeah. Well, did you see the thing where they were saying that like talent doesn't want to do anything? Yeah. I mean, it just the folks at Comic Con International uh, released an additional statement, explained their position about this was the only time that was available, and there were other cons around the country that have used the same date, but. I think somebody was pointing out that in years past they've done this in New York, but it's like, well, yeah, because you could get on the subway, go to the con for the day and still be home with the family. Right. That's not an option with this one. So we were just talking about how season two of Mirror Royal Detective and My My Little Pony Pony Life kind of sad to learn that one series is only going to get two seasons and that's bless the hearts it's a, it's a charming show it is it is a debut as part of fox's animation domination block back in september of 2019 and the timing of this cancellation i mean the news broke this afternoon is a little weird because tuesday of this week we learned about the launch of 20th century uh, 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 yeah 20th century 20th television anim- animation, animation. Yeah. yeah do you do you want to talk about that or yeah, well, I mean, it's just really interesting because it it's being run by Marcy Proleto. Let's mm-hmm. say that's her name. Yeah. Yep. Um, and she's been hired to run this new unit, and they've described it as being a development hub for quote unquote dozens of adult skewering mm-hmm. animated shows. And mm-hmm. the but what's funny is one of the examples they give is Bless the Hearts. Well, that's what I mean. I mean, literally, here's this announcement from Tuesday about here's these 11 shows that we're working on and that we already have up and running and we have dozens more in development. And then right after that, and we're shutting this one down. But I mean, the portfolio is amazing. I mean, it includes The Simpsons, Family Guy, Bob's Burgers, Mm -hmm. and Central Park, our favorite. Hello, Ava. And also, they are working on projects for Apple TV+, HBO Mm -hmm. Max, all these different streamers. So it's not a... It's not purely a conduit for Disney Plus or Hulu projects. Although... As I just mentioned, Solar Opposites, which we mm-hmm. have heard already, is not is renewed for a third season as part of this as well. So, mm-hmm. Marcy looks like she is the right person for the job. There's a, the story here that's part of the the thing in the trades that I guess her first job out of college was she was the assistant to the head of production on, on The Simpsons. You joined the show in its sixth season and has since worked on every other Fox animated property. Her resume at this point, she has worked on over 2,400 episodes of animation on 22 different shows. So it's like probably the right person to be writing heard on this effort. Yes. 20th century television animation is going to have some competition like Stupid Buddy Studios. And speaking of Stupid Buddy... Have you heard about the show Ultra City Smiths, the thing they're doing for AMC? It's only a six-episode order, but the gimmick of it is is it's a kind of a noir, a a murder mystery, only (laughs) the difference is the characters in the show will all have doll heads. Okay. It's already got a killer voice cast. John C. Riley, B.B. Newirth, Kurtwood Smith. We don't have a a launch time yet. Basically, they've alluded to it will drop sometime this summer, but they haven't locked when. Kind of unexpected. Murder mystery with doll heads. But I'm there. It's stupid buddies. I'm there. Speaking of of unexpected and in relation to a company that 
does stop motion. What was your take this week with the Leica news? Well, the the Leica news that they're going to be moving into live action with an, an upcoming novel called 17 by John Brownlow, which was described as a YA novel in some reporting. Did you see that? And yep, you, yep. Yeah, it's, it's very weird. But I also pointed out to you that it, it's not a Travis Knight movie mm-hmm. either. They're just okay. developing it. I guess okay. it could be. Okay. But he's, you know, he's developing the $6 billion man for mm-hmm. um, Warner Brothers right mm-hmm. now. But when when we were talking about this earlier in the week when it broke, we were talking about how they kind of had to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Because they haven't really had a huge hit. And, and also, it's not like there's a certain animation company that did the exact same thing, that, you know, Walt Disney. People forget that December of 37, he puts out Snow White, and it's eight years later after being predominantly the studio that did only animation. I mean, you know, if you want to talk about the the live action scenes and that sort of stuff for like three caballeros or that sort of thing. But it was only December 46, I want to say, or November where we got song of the South, where you see a Disney start to lean more toward live action. Cause frankly, it's easier to make those movies. You can get them out faster. And I think jump ahead to 49 with the uh, treasure Island was the first really for real full length live action film without any animation in it. So, Leica, who did strictly animation for 10 years and I want to say five months or thereabouts between Coraline and Missing Link, actually hung in there longer than Walt. So, and again, there's no shame in doing this. You work that hard, you work that long. And for them to also get into the YA field, I mean, between the Hunger Games and and Twilight, there's a lot of money you can make off of being in the the young adult field. So we'll see. Well, I mean, I remember I was at Leica for a press day for Box Mm -hmm. Trolls when they were still in production. And I remember we had a lunch Mm -hmm. where it was just a very casual lunch, but Mm -hmm. Travis was there. Mm -hmm. And I just sort of point blank asked him, how long can you keep doing this? Because these movies are expensive and they don't really make any money. And, you know, he kind of hemmed and hawed and said, we don't have that big a footprint. We don't have that big of a staff. You Mm -hmm. know, it's not a huge expenditure, but you can only do this for so long without a kind of like imagine if if Pixar didn't hit their stride until five movies in or something. You know, it's it's I understand the need to diversify is what I'm saying. I get that. I get that. But at the same time, you look at things like Kubu and the, the Two Strings and a wonderful, amazing film. Nobody does stop yeah. motion like that. So yes. as long as we're talking about stop motion, I, I want to ask how many people out there have seen Vincent, the stop motion short that Disney put out back in October of 1982, the black and white film about the little boy who dreamed he was Vincent Price. You've undoubtedly seen this through, right? Oh, I love it. Yes, yeah. I watched it at the MoMA mm-hmm. retrospective. I'm looking to see if it, it doesn't look like it's on Disney Plus, but it should be. I totally agree. I totally agree. But this short, it launched uh, not only Tim Burton's career, but also started Vincent Price's association with the Walt Disney Company, which Drew, by the way, pointed out was a little broader than, than I remembered. So... Tell you what, folks, we're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll expand on on what Drew pointed out. 
uh, before we get started on the feature, Drew and I have been pretty point blank about the fact that we are big fans of Gennady Tartakovsky's Primal. Super fans, Jim. Super, Super fans. fans. Okay. Which is why I was pleased to share this info that the Blu-ray and the DVD of season one is finally coming out. Yeah, June 1st with oh, some gosh. special features. And you saw that is Clone Wars is on Disney Plus today, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm still trying to kind of wrap my head around that because at one point there was actually talk of, of showing those in theaters to sort of act as a bridging agent between Attack of the Clones and Revenge of the Sith. Yeah, they were going to show the last the last one of the second set yeah. before Attack of the Clowns. What's weird is on Disney Plus, they've just grouped them mm-hmm. like in hour long chunks. So you could just watch the first group and the second group, which is kind mm-hmm. of a bummer. You can't go individually because okay. as you and I know, the Mace Window episode is one you've got to go back to again and again. Um, oh. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's better to have it than not, right? And also uh, Ewoks. Okay. Well, I thought let's not <laughs> go that far. I'm again, I'm a diabetic. I can only watch so much Ewok. And and better to have than not. We just lost a SpongeBob in the past week. Did you do you see this story about the quarantined crab episode? It has been pulled from the inventory supposedly because. It's been deemed insensitive during the pandemic. Oh, no. I saw that they, they pulled the, the Panty Raid episode, hmm. which oh, okay. is, the, is the home of many, many uh, SpongeBob memes, which I thought was kind of funny. <laughs> okay. Uh, but well, no, I didn't hear about this. Yeah. This is the episode where the health inspector finds a, a case of clam flu has broken out at the Krusty Krab. And, and so all the patrons are then quarantined in the restaurant and hilarity ensues. And, uh, evidently not so funny anymore. So it'll be interesting to see if this one gets folded back into the inventory when COVID is way in the rearview mirror. But while we're looking in the rearview mirror, for the past, I want to say four or five weeks, Len Test and I over in the Disney Dish podcast have been doing the history of the Twilight Zone Tower of Terror. And On one of the recent episodes, we talked about how there was this period of time where the Imagineers were toying with having Vincent Price be the host of the attraction. And this was during a period when the storyline was about a silent film director who went mad and he's the one who cuts the cable on the the elevator and makes it fall. They envisioned Price as the voice. And Drew reached out almost as soon as we finished the episode. And it's like, why don't you talk about what you reminded me of, which I'm kind of embarrassed well, like you didn't mention as part of the show. No. Well, first of all, this series is wonderful. And it's, you know, it's hugely helpful to me because I'm working on something in that period. So mm-hmm. to be reminded of the uh, ambitious plans for the Euro Disney project and everything else. But you brought up the fact that he narrated the Phantom Manor in Paris and I said, Jim, what do you, you forgot? He was in Disney MGM Studios already because mm-hmm. he was narrating the Sorcery in the Sky uh, Nighttime Spectacular, which was really f- a fun show, I thought. Honest, for the, the longest time, it was my favorite nighttime spectacular in Florida. Yeah, but largely because, again, it was staged on top of and around and above the Chinese theater. And yes, Vincent's voice was one of the things that really made the thing sing. 
a lot of people don't recall that when Vincent passed in, I want to say September of 93, they're about to, they discontinued using his voice. They went with a more generic voice, but what I love about Drew is he's tenacious. So you, you started hammering on Vincent Price and Disney and came across this weird little interstitial thing that had been on the Disney channel. Do you, do you want to talk about that? Well, what's, what's really sad, Jim, is that I wasn't even looking for this. I have been <laughs> just watching Disney Channel interstitial material because I really love that period when it was a pay channel. And there mm. are some great collections of like the free weekends, you know, where they, they, yes. they have a woman at a computer and a phone. Mm. And I'm I'm here to take your subscription call or whatever. <laughs> so anyway, what part of this was a segment called Read, Write, and Draw, mm-hmm. which was a very charming kind of little short thing with Vincent Price kind of teaching kids how to read, write, and mm-hmm. draw. And it's mm-hmm. really, really cute. Also kind of weird. Um, so you had some information about how he kind of came to Disney, right? For the first 20 years, he was in Hollywood from 38 to 58. He's a contract player. He's in dramas. He's in comedies. It's only in 1958 when he does The Fly that he kind of finds his new niche. He becomes a horror guy. He's so unfamiliar with doing horror at this point. Do you remember The Fly at all with the whole David yeah, Hedison? Help me, help me. <laughs> There's the end scene where it's Vincent Price and Her- Herbert Marshall, and I-, I think they're outside in a park on a bench. And the thing is, they're both sort of staring straight into the camera as they do their final scene. And it turns out there's a reason it was staged that, that way, that he initially staged the scene and they, they couldn't get through it without breaking up laughing because it's like, oh, God, this movie is so dumb. You know, and I'm glad I'm getting paid, but this movie is terrible. And eventually he's like, all right, all right, the only way we're going to get through this scene is if we, you know, you both are staring straight ahead. And, and then, of course, the movie turns out to be this massive hit and is like, two sequels and then the Jeff Bluck Goldblum boom reboot with Gina Davis in the eighties. So Price becomes this horror guy in the sixties. And this is when young Tim Burton, uh, who was born in 58 falls in love with Vincent Price. You know, the story drew, but you know how he ends up at Disney and, and coming out of Cal arts and is the quote unquote weird guy. And one day, Burton comes to Tom Wilhite, the the then head of Walt Disney Studios, with this idea. He's written a poem called Vincent, which again is about Vincent Malloy, the little boy who thinks he's Vincent Price. And Burton wants to do this as a stop-motion film. But Wilhite is looking at it and saying, well, it's charming, it's fun, but I don't want to get sued by Vincent Price. So the only way this thing is going to happen is if Vincent Price signs off on it. So Tom Wilhite arranges for the manuscript to be sent to Vincent Price. And literally, it's, it's like Vincent Price is holding Tim Burton's career in his hands. If he says, no, this film doesn't go forward. And if this film doesn't go forward, think about it. We don't get Frankenweenie. We don't get Pee-wee's Big Adventure. Batman. <laughs> there you go. I mean, but to his credit, Vincent Price is both charmed and flattered. You know, it's like, you know, oh, my God, a kid at Disney wants to make a movie about me. Sure, go ahead, you know, and yes, I'll come in and narrate it. Wilhite gives him basically no money. As I understand it, it's Rick Heinrich. Is that the gentleman who... Yeah, I think he's credited as... 
he, yeah, he might be a co-director on that okay. one or something. Like he, yeah, he was very involved in Vincent mm-hmm. for sure. As you're drilling down into your your Disney Channel stuff, there's that Disney Channel showcase. That's the one where you get to see the work in progress of the early, early Roger Rabbit. Yes, yeah. And at one point, don't they stop in and and spend time with Tim and, and Rick? And I guess, I think they show some of Vincent while they're doing that, but aren't they working on that Hansel and Gretel done as Kabuki theater thing for the Disney Channel? Yeah, the thing that was aired one time. There we go. That's it exactly like I, I love that. You know, again, a small group of truly crazy Tim Burton fans. It's like, yeah, we know. You know, well, the, in fact, that was half the reason I went to the MoMA. Didn't they run chunks of that on on one of the monitors in there? Or they did, and they also ran. Speaking of stop motion, they ran the stop motion tests for Mars Attacks. And oh, all the Martians right. were going to be that's stop right. motion. That's right. Yeah. Well, anyway, you got to start somewhere. And in the case of, of Tim Burton, it's Vincent. And Disney gives Tim and Rick $60,000. And they have to get the whole film done for $60,000. And they have to have it done in just two months' time uh, so it can be out in theaters in October of 82. And Vincent Price, it, it comes to Disney lot and records. And so who notices that Vincent Price is on the lot but Ron Clements? This is during the period where Ron is working on The Black Cauldron. He's the one who recognizes that this film is a combination of two greats, you know, the Titanic and the, the Hindenburg, you know, and he, he wants off. He, he, he wants some other project. This film's going to die, and it's going to take Disney Animation with it. So he goes to Ron Miller and convinces him, I guess they'd already licensed the film rights to the Basil of Baker Street book series. And Miller's like, okay, sure, go develop that as the follow-up to Black Cauldron. Supposedly, Ron sees Price on the lot coming and going for the, to work on Vincent. And it's like, ooh, he might be an interesting guy for Professor Radigan. And sure enough, that's what ends up happening. Now, now mind you, again, you were talking about how Tim and Rick only got $60,000 to make Vincent. The story that Ron Clemens tells was that, you know, when he was, what, pitching Eisner? about making Basil of Baker Street. It's like, well, we're going to need three and a half years and we need $24 million and we can have this ready for Christmas of 87. And what was Eisner's response? <laughs> you get half the time and half the money, <laughs> you know, and this needs to be in theaters by July of 86. So the fact that that movie is as good as it is under those conditions is amazing. But yeah, he comes and records all the stuff for Professor Radigan in 84, 85. And it's then the Disney Channel people literally say, hey, what's Vincent Price doing on the lot? And is he available? Are we working with him now? And this is where your read, write, and draw thing comes from? Right. Now he's in the mix at Disney, which brings us to Phantom Manor. And same thing. The Imagineers are like, wow, Vincent Price works at Disney now. We should get him for our new Haunted Mansion. And there's this wonderful story of him recording the dialogue for Phantom Manor in the spring of 1990. And the thing is that they spent three and a half hours with him working phonetically on the French pronunciation of the script. And I I guess it's, it's just it did not work out. 
he was replaced, right? Wasn't it? Well, yeah, that's that. Was ultimately, he- they wound up with two different voices. On the other hand, when he went to do the English version, uh, he knocked it out in two takes, and everybody loved it. But but as you mentioned, uh, the attraction opens in April of 1992. You know, at this point, it's just deemed that, all right, maybe that doesn't work. And I guess after about three or four months, they pull Vincent's voice work out of it. When they redid the Phantom Manor for 2019, it brought back his voice work. And now it's a, it's a dual track attraction. You can get the French, you can get, or you can get Vincent Price. Though we should probably also talk about Nightmare Before Christmas because Tim Burton back in 82 wanted, as his follow-up to doing Vincent, the, the stop motion thing, wanted to do Nightmare. Only this was the holiday special version, you know, the half hour long one that they were going to do. And his sale point to Disney is, well, look, if you look at how the Grinch stole Christmas, you know, that's narrated by a great horror voice. That's narrated by Boris Karloff. And we just worked with Vincent Price. We should bring him back. And for that management group at Disney, Nightmare was the bridge too far. (laughs) You know, it was just sort of like, no. But when Disney finally did decide they wanted Burton back and they they were willing to do whatever they could. So they, they greenlit Nightmare with Henry Selleck. At this point, Burton reaches out to Vincent Price and wants him to try out for the narrator. And I think at, at that point, they were also looking at James Earl Jones. They were also looking at Don Amici. But at this point, Vincent, he's got emphysema. He's got Parkinson. I mean, it, it, what's fascinating to me is in the spring of 1990, here he is doing the, the Phantom Manor stuff. And they bring him in the, in the fall to do the, the voice worker tryout for Nightmare. And his voice is starting to fall apart at this point. And so they default, Burton still wants him to be a part of it. So they, they have him record the first voice for Santa in Nightmare. I guess in the end, it was Henry Selig who made the call. He's listening to the tracks and it's like, this is a sad, old, weak Santa Claus. I don't know is that's a guy who could stand up to Oogie Boogie. Right. So they pull the tracks and, you know, there's somewhere in the Disney vaults next to the Phil Harris stuff for Tailspin, I guess. But that same year is when Burton is also shooting Edward Scissorhand. This is when they kind of got the inkling that, you know, maybe we have to be a little more careful with Vincent. Because I guess the inventor uh, initially had a much bigger part in the movie. But they shot his scenes last. I guess they shot all the stuff in Tampa uh, with the neighborhood and all that early on. And then they shot the remaining stuff back in Burbank so Vincent could just come in for the day. And they just found out when they got him on the set, he's in rough shape. And they had to really collapse the part in a bit. I mean, he's still very, very effective in the film. Which brings us to your story, Drew, because you you reminded me that for years now, there's been a story about what arguably, I guess, would be Burton's last collaboration with Vincent Price. Yeah, I mean, when when Vincent Price died, mm-hmm. Burton was making a feature-length documentary about their relationship, which maybe would have been distributed by Disney. Obviously, Ed Wood opened in, 2000, in 1993, excuse mm-hmm. me, and the relationship between Ed Wood and Bella Lugosi is very much based on the Tim Burton, Vincent Price relationship. I did not know I that. I think that he was... Oh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So 
And that was released by Disney, by Touchstone. So, you know, even though he didn't get his documentary out, I think that that little bit of remove where he, you know, it wasn't so sort of nakedly emotional and autobiographical. Mm -hmm. He put all that into Ed Wood, which I would argue maybe is Tim Burton's greatest film. So, I mean, he still kind of worked through those things in a different way. But I would still love to see what the footage from his documentary looked like i hope someday he decides to splice it together you know no 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 definitely especially in this subscription streaming service world where something like that could do quite well in the festival circuit you know if there were still a festival circuit i think something like this that there'd be an audience out there that would embrace that right off the bat two quick stories before we close out here because that i was living in florida at the time that Edward Scissorhand was being shot. And there are these two very weird Disney ties to the movie. You remember the neighborhood when Edward, you know, comes down off the mountain and is brought home by the, the mom selling Avon. And you get the tour of the really right. ugly neighborhood. This is a real neighborhood, a subdivision outside of Tampa. And Burton knew that the homeowners were not going to be happy when he saw what he was going to do to their houses, you know, paint them really ugly colors and make the windows smaller and all that. So he wanted them as far away as possible. So when they signed you to be, you know, the, the, your house and Edward is their hand. It's like, Oh, by the way, as, as a thank you, how would you and your family like to go to Walt Disney world? We'll put you up in a hotel over there. You're going to be, you know, 90 miles away. So you can't drive home and check what we're doing to your house. So, you know, those families all stayed at Walt Disney World for a couple of weeks while Edward Scissorhand was being shot. Conversely, though, a a friend of mine who worked at the Adventures Club, uh, Andy Clark, he was the original Graves, the butler, but he got hired to actually be in the cast of of Edward Scissorhand and, and just, you know, would describe it as this very, very surreal experience. But he has one line in the movie where I think at one point a, a backyard party goes up to Edward and it's like, you know, I know a doctor who could maybe help you out with those hands. And during the years when he was working at the Adventures Club, he always knew he was dealing with a Tim Burton fan when people would walk up to him and, you know, he'd be holding the tray as Graves the butler and they'd go, I know a doctor who can help you out with those hands. It's great. It's a great line reading, I gotta say. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is. But. <laughs> Thank you, Drew, for, for again, for bringing up the Vincent Price thing. Because, again, I'm just embarrassed that I forgot about Sorcery in the Sky because it was was so much fun. And and you were pointing out that there was that five-minute-long window of time where, as part of it, they did that Rocketeer tribute. Yeah, with a guy in a real rocket pack, like the kind you'd see at, like, a, you know, Mike Tyson boxing mm-hmm. match or something. But mm-hmm. what was interesting was that the Rocketeer moment in that, Nighttime Spectacular was based off of a deleted scene in the movie. That's right. Which That's right. was the, the Rocketeer saving somebody who falls off the marquee of the mm. Chinese theater, which is also why there are blast prints. I'm not sure if they're still there, but mm-hmm. in the wet cement, there's a blast print from the Rocketeer as his signature outside the theater. I have a copy of the, that draft of the screenplay. And in fact, it, the way that scene ends, I forget which starlet is supposed to be stepping into the, the wet cement, but you're right that, that, that it's a the premiere at the, the Chinese theater and there's somebody up 
on the wall of the theater with a spotlight who turns into the rocketeer and loses their footing and falls the ground. The rocketeer saves him at the last minute, but as he's saving the guy, his feet get planted in the cement. And that he blasts off and Sid Grauman, they, they actually have an actor playing Sid Grauman, immediately leans over and signs in the, the concrete, the rocketeer. And you see this starlet get really upset because it's like, that's supposed to be my cement. And it's like, no, 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 it's the rocketeer cement. <laughs> but now I'm, I'm going to have to go back and look for those blast prints. Yeah, I ordered the paperback of the novelization. So hopefully ah. that will shed some light. I will look into that and we'll, I'll... I'll Hopefully it'll be here by the time we record next. So Okay, yeah. cool. And and while you're waiting for our next recording, this isn't the only podcaster who does. There's, there's that wonderful trio of shows that you do, Light the Fuse, Light the Wick, and Light the Fuselage. So what's going on with those right now? We're still chugging along. We got a lot of great episodes. We've got mm. some episodes with the guys that did the titles for John Wick, and they also mm. did some subtitles for Ghost Protocol when Tom Cruise is figuring out how to speak English or, or what the translation is from mm -hmm. Russian to English. And the subtitles kind of change mm -hmm. on the screen from uh, Cyrillic to English. So they did that. So we got, we got an episode of light the wick and an episode of light the fuse out of these great guys from filmograph and uh, a lot of big surprises for, for later this summer. I want to kind of keep it, keep it under wraps for now, but we've got, we've got some great shows coming up. So if you're at all interested in, Mission Impossible, John Wick, or a mm -hmm. certain aviation-themed Tom Cruise franchise, which shall remain nameless. Check it out. Can't wait. Can't wait. <laughs> okay. Well, we also have a, a few podcasts over here. I mean, we mentioned earlier uh, Disney Dish with, with Len Testa. Likewise, Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. On Monday, Aaron and I will be recording a brand new Marvel Us Disney podcast. Tell you what, folks, if you could do Drew and I a favor, if you could head over to Apple Podcasts and rate and review uh, not only the, the podcast you're listening to right now, fine tuning, but likewise, light the fuse, light the wick, and light the fuselage, that would be very helpful. If you can head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that would help. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media and on Facebook at Jim Hill Media News. Thanks for listening, folks, and we will be back soon.